Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. When I first got interested in building science, I worked for a state energy program. One of the program's partners was an insulator named Paul Weir, who had a blower door and an infrared camera. Both pieces of equipment were invaluable for our work, but they weighed a ton. Paul said that the infrared camera cost about $50,000, and he always warned me to keep the lens focused on a spot with small rotating circles so that the lens didn't burn up. The blower door consisted of two halves, each made up of two steel plates that slid against each other and when cammed into place, created the shroud that the blower fan itself clamped to. The controls were housed in a suitcase box and incorporated the gauge, controller, and I believe a printer of sorts that documented the results of the test. All four sections that created the blower door probably weighed about 75 pounds each. Gary Nelson, co-founder of the Energy Conservatory, is an engineer who turned his attention to residential efficiency in the 1980s. He is often referred to as the father of the blower door, but as you can see, he didn't invent the technology. He did, however, strive to make a blower door that was light, easy to use, accurate, and cheap, and he was successful. Gary's vision was to get the blower door into every contractor's hand as he felt that it brought building science to life for contractors and weatherization agencies specializing in efficiency, durability, and comfort of homes. Gary's success can be measured by the success of the Energy Conservatory, the company he says he accidentally created as more and more people asked him to build blower doors for them. However, success can be measured by so much more than the growth of a company. Gary was also instrumental in the creation of the duck blaster and flow plate measuring tools has contributed to the success of countless housing studies and programs, and has contributed to an industry and its understanding of the building science of airflow. Gary is also the nicest and most gracious person you will ever meet. And it was an honor and pleasure to speak with him on the BuildCast. Now that there are competitors distributing blower door and duct testing equipment, I have to say that I have always been a loyal fan of the Energy Conservatory largely because of Gary, but also because of the equipment and what he and the Energy Conservatory have done to professionalize and move our industry forward. I just want to say thank you, Gary Nelson. So now I hope you enjoy our discussion. Hi, this is Robbie Schwartz with Bill Tank Inc. And I'm here with Gary Nelson, the founder of the Energy Conservatory. How are you doing, Gary? Hi, Robbie. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm wonderful. It's uh, okay. cold outside, as it sounds like it is up in your neck of the woods as well. Yeah, we've just had 10 inches of really wet snow, and now it's going to get cold. And so uh, I've already it's it's only 10 o'clock, and I've been outside for the last hour and a half helping to shovel the driveway so my wife could get out and run some errands. Yeah, you're more. But it's uh, but it's beautiful. Yeah. 
And your house, I, I believe, has a heat pump, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, How's it do, how's it do in that cold weather? Well, uh, it's, it, it really works very well. Uh, maybe I should tell you a little bit about our house. Uh, sure. We bought in 1978 a house that was built in uh, 1906 that needed, it was a story, or it is a story and a half house. Well, it isn't anymore. It's now a two-story house. But uh, it was a story and a half house that needed lots of work, had terrible ice dams, a rotting roof because of the the uh, air leakage from the house into the attic. And in 1978, uh, I was working at a company called Medtronic that makes pacemakers as a mechanical engineer, but I was also very interested in, in making buildings more energy efficient. So it was kind of a a project that we that we ended up buying and uh around 1980 we did a super insulation retrofit where we added three or four inches of rigid foam on the outside of the walls after blowing them full of cellulose and uh we sealed the the attic air leaks and and it ended up, we, it was easier to, rather than to fix the roof, to just tear it off and, and build a second, a full second story on the top of the house. So, so those new walls were all uh, two by six walls with three inches of foam on the outside. And we got the house down to like two air changes at 50 pascals. We ripped out a gas uh, uh, gravity furnace that I measured was maybe about 70% efficient and uh, used the existing uh, uh, natural draft, just old 10-year-old water heater to heat the house by circulating water through a fan coil. So when the thermostat called for heat, it turned on a pump and turned on a fan and it blew hot air that was getting its heat from the, from the uh, hot water heater, which failed a few years later and then was replaced with a condensing water heater. So we had one of the first, at least in Minnesota, one of the first uh, retrofitted super insulated houses about 1980. We put in uh, all, almost all new triple pane windows, but that was before low E and argon fill and good edge spacers. And so we had a lot of condensation on the inside of the windows and some of the wood rotted and and it was a hassle getting up in the morning and, and wiping the, the condensate uh, off of the window sills. And, uh, but the house performed really well. And then uh, about five years ago, we decided to replace the windows. And I asked my wife or, or mentioned, well, if we're gonna replace the windows, is there any other work that we would like done? Do you want any walls moved? Do you want any additions built? Now would be the time. Yeah. And that got us thinking and we ended up adding an addition, moving the garage and doing a whole bunch of stuff. But we, in spite of adding like 30% more floor area, we got the, uh, uh, CFM 50 of the house to go from about 1,000 down to 500. And we got rid of gas. We put in an induction 
top. Well, we had an electric resistance stove, but we put in an induction stove or induction cooktop and uh, a, a Fujitsu one and a half ton air source heat pump, which is rated to work down to five below, but it's actually run, still runs at uh, 25 below, uh, which it did like four winters ago. And uh, uh, we've needed a little bit of backup electric resistant space heating instead of putting in as was recommended to me, oh, you should put in, you know, five kilowatts of uh, resistance heat in the supply plenum. And I just decided, no, 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 we're not going to do that. So we just have a couple of 1500 watt space heaters. And, and it turns out when it gets to almost always, if it gets to 10 below zero, there's no problem at all. The capacity of the system goes down maybe to two 10 or 12,000 BTUs yeah. per hour, where it's normally 18,000. And the COP still is one and a half or 1.6 or 1.7, something like that. But yeah. uh, it it doesn't quite have the capacity uh, to heat the house. Well, when it gets down to 10 below zero, as long as the sun comes out the next day or it warms up a little bit the next day, we don't even notice that the temperature went down a degree or two at night. But if the sun doesn't come out or it stays below zero for two or three days, then we start noticing that the the house is uh, losing some temperature. And, and, and we, it's just uh, that the capacity isn't quite there at that temperature. Yeah. Yeah, I think if we had the whole 18,000 BTUs and it didn't have to turn off every 30 or 40 minutes to go on defrost for five minutes, yeah. that's where we really lose capacity. And I don't think in the manufacturer's specs, they really take that into account. Uh, they give the the degradation, the 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 capacity at various temperatures down to five below, but that's when it's running. That's not when it's defrosting. Yeah. And if it's defrosting for five minutes every 40 minutes, uh, you lose a lot of capacity yeah. from that also. So yeah. so anyway, we, we uh, whatever room, you know, when we went to bed at night, we'd put uh, a space heater in our bedroom and turn it on low and and uh, when we we're up during the day we would put a space heater in the kitchen and and run it on low and or if we would do a lot of baking that would be more than enough to heat yeah. the house so so i'd say you know it in five years there have now been three two or three day periods of time where we we've needed just a little bit of electric heat from portable space heaters yeah so i'm perfectly happy I, at the time when we installed the heat pump i would have put in a two ton or a twenty-four thousand btu per hour heat pump but at least with the fujitsu cold climate heat pump that people were recommending at the time and i think that's still one that is recommended uh but with with that heat pump with a uh well, 
we have a ducted forced air heat uh -huh. pump. Uh, if you go over one and a half tons or 18,000 BTUs per hour, you need two indoor units. You need okay. two coils okay. or, uh, well, there's, there's different combinations, but that made the whole system much more complicated. I had read that there were some problems of when one zone, you now have two zones. When one zone is calling for heater cooling and the other one isn't, some of the heater cooling still goes to the other zone. And I just decided I wanted a really simple system. So we went with the one and a half ton and I, well, I calculated it. It should be good down to zero or five below, and that seemed good enough. And and yeah, it's worked great. That's that's interesting. I um, was going to ask if it was a cold climate heat pump, and obviously you you said it was. Uh, we're yeah. we're in here in Colorado in the Front Range. We're uh, promoting. There's a lots of promotion and uh, incentives to install heat pumps and uh, right now they're one program specifically um, Energy Star's new next gen program being used in the um, Marshall Fire rebuild uh, is per, is only allowing Energy Star qualified cold climate heat pumps and uh, there's there's a lot of interest uh, there and it's it's great to hear stories where they're success been successfully installed because so many contractors out here anyway have no experience with them and they're very they're still very reluctant to uh, install this technology even though it's been around for quite some time it seems like yeah that's certainly true here even though uh, you know we have this organization Center for Energy and the Environment that's doing a lot of research on uh, uh, retrofitting heat pumps into existing houses so there are a couple of contractors that they've worked with that really know the technology and know how to install them but a couple of contractors in a state <laughs> is yeah. not is not enough and and most of them i've heard lots of stories of you know somebody called their a, a, a contractor and wanted to install a heat pump and they tried to talk them out of it because they don't work when it's this cold yeah so you um were you had the opportunity to uh, experiment on your own house as well, but um, that isn't alone what got you into the energy conservatory, oh. I'm guessing. Oh, um, yeah. How, how else did you learn about uh, super insulated houses and tight houses and, and what kind of is your trajectory to the energy conservatory? Yep. So I started, uh, when we bought our house, I started thinking and researching a lot about how to make houses more efficient and one day i i was very happy with my job at medtronic i was not looking for another job but yeah. one day i happened to look in the sunday paper one ads under help wanted mechanical engineers and there was an ad from the state energy office uh, they wanted to hire a residential energy conservation research and development engineer. And I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> and 
I called in sick the next day and called up the, the phone number that was there and I talked to the person that was doing the hiring and I said, well, I, I called in sick today so that maybe I could come in for an interview. Can I come in for an interview? And he said, sure. So I went in and talked to this guy for probably a couple of hours and like a week later, they offered me a job that was more hours and less pay and it was the best thing I ever did. Uh, so for for two years, I worked for the state energy office and worked on uh, designing uh, calculation procedures for a large energy audit program that was called the Residential Conservation Service Program. It was a national program through DOE, DOE that required all of the major utilities to offer energy uh, audits to their customers. So I worked on that. And then I worked a little bit on uh, a super insulation program. And uh, and after two years, I decided I really needed to have a job where I got into buildings more. So I left the energy office in order to work on a research project with uh, an old uh, college professor of mine, Dave Robinson, and uh, to do some consulting and to to become a house doctor. And I needed a blower door and blower doors were really expensive and they were largely designed as research tools. I, I had used one that I borrowed from a local group called the Mid-America Solar Energy Center. Uh, I had borrowed one to do a study of a group of what were supposed to be low energy buildings but it was really hard to use. It was very expensive. And so I decided to build one. I decided, well, I can make a blower door. And the first one didn't work very well at all. And then I decided, well, I should read some books about fans and, and study fan engineering a little bit. And, and I designed another one that worked better. And then I designed a third one that worked even better. And then, uh, uh, I, I had a partner at the time, Gary Anderson, who, who was uh, real handy with making things. And so he and I uh, made these first three blower doors. And then somebody asked us to make one for them. And then somebody wanted five. And then the weatherization program in Wisconsin wanted to start using blower doors. And they bought some. And we kind of accidentally just got into the business of making blower doors. Uh, and the, the goal was when I first saw a blower door, which was back when I was working for the state energy office, probably in 1980 or 81, uh, I thought right away that these shouldn't be research tools that I, I thought every builder, every insulation contractor, every HVAC contractor should have one of these and they will have one of these and all of the air leakage problems in buildings will be solved within five years because this is such obvious technology that it's going to catch yeah. on really fast. Well, I was wrong. Yeah. The home home building industry changes very slowly. Yes. Yeah. As, as you've learned in your work with trying to convince builders that it really makes sense to build better houses and we should we need better codes that the builders associations always fight against. Yeah. Interesting. The um, so um, when you used your first blower door, um, 
what was the the thought process with regards to air leakage? Was was the importance of air leakage um, really solidified at that point? Uh, oh yeah, impact on houses. Uh, yeah, for for me anyway, I yeah. had access when I worked for the state because I was designing an energy audit program. I had an unlimited back then there were these things called long distance phone calls that you had to pay for yeah and i was lucky to have an unlimited phone uh budget and spent hours on the phone with gautam dutt from princeton with uh one of my uh physics professors dave robinson i uh met larry palmiter and spent lots of time uh talking with him and uh, uh, so Gautam Dutt and others at Princeton had actually back in the late 70s discovered by measuring temperatures in attics in a bunch of houses, they discovered that attics in the winter typically were much warmer than you would calculate just based on uh, conductive heat transfer between the house and the attic and then between the attic and the outside. And that led them to discover these things that they called attic bypasses, which were generally fairly large chaseways, like around chimneys, plumbing stacks, but even the crack between the top plate and the sheetrock uh, of the partition walls and the wiring holes in the tops of the partition walls uh, this group at Princeton figured out that this was really a major heat loss area in northern climates. And, and they developed the technique of using a blower door with an infrared camera to find uh, air leakage sites, between, not just between the house and the attic, but between the house and the crawl space, the, in, the uh, air leakage through the walls. Uh, but the main thing that they discovered, I think, was the importance of attic uh, air leakage sites. And they discovered this technique, or they invented the technique of using blower doors and, and infrared cameras. Uh, so I knew about that. Obviously, hardly anybody did. This This was just you know, current research that was going yeah. on, but but it caught on, you know, there were a lot of people that knew about these problems and there was this, well, I, I've, I've been digging up old stuff lately because I'm moving some stuff out of my old office and trying to find some old things. And I found this, the house doctor's manual written by people at Lawrence Berkeley Labs in 1982, which is a, a manual on how to use an infrared camera and a blower door and yeah. how to look for leaks and how to seal them. And so this was known at the time, but it wasn't yet commonly done. And in fact, you know, one, one of the, the most rewarding projects I worked on uh, after leaving the state energy office was a project with the low income weatherization program in Minnesota. Uh, along with Gautam Dutt and Lester Shen and, and, well, a bunch of people. 
we worked on the low income weatherization program uh, uh, diagnostic and and weatherization procedures to try to improve the cost effectiveness of the weatherization program. And before we started doing this, nobody was, they were blowing insulation in attics on top of the insulation that was there, but not doing any air sealing. They didn't really know about the leakage of rim joists and how to find them. They didn't have blower doors, so they didn't have any way to measure what they were doing. And they were spending like half of their budget on caulking tiny cracks around windows and doors yeah. and and actually caulking the laps between lap siding on okay. the exterior of a house, going through hundreds of tubes of caulk on a house, doing things that were totally not cost effective. So we came up with a procedure where we, we first trained, uh, I think it was like six crews from three different agencies around Minnesota. Uh, we, we taught them where the leaks typically are. We taught them how to use a blower door. Uh, some of them had access to an infrared camera uh, from a previous research project. And then we asked them to do a blower door test while the blower door is running, go around and find where you think the biggest leaks are, spend a couple of hours sealing those leaks and then do another blower door test. And then look for the next biggest leaks and seal those yeah. and do another blower door test and try to, and then come up with estimates of the cost effectiveness of the air sealing work that you're doing. And by doing this, uh, they discovered that they were spending way too much time sealing things that had no, no or very little impact and that they were missing the big things. And so it really completely changed the weatherization program in Minnesota and then Wisconsin and then Virginia and then Montana. And, you know, the word, the word got out, but it, but it started, I think, as far as I can tell from this uh, small study that we did in Minnesota. Yeah, the weatherization uh, industry has really pushed uh, building science and our understanding uh, forward uh, really pretty quickly compared to uh, what we were talking about before, the projection of things in new construction just is, is so slow. Uh, yep. But the you know, new construction still hasn't adopted many of those things. Um, I was curious, um, yeah. in your work in weatherization and tightening up the houses, when did uh, we start thinking about uh, ventilating the house in a controlled way and the kind of the linkage between house tightness and, and ventilation? Uh, yep, uh, good question. I think it was a, a weatherization agency in western Wisconsin, uh, yeah, called Westcap. Uh, they bought five blower doors and got training from Jim Fitzgerald. And oh, I should have mentioned, we also discovered in this, uh, this weatherization study that especially in balloon frame, old two-story buildings, uninsulated balloon frame buildings, if you dense pack insulation in the walls, it can reduce the air leakage of the building by a lot. And yeah. uh, that was one of the findings. And we decided that one, 
one of the uh, recommendations for almost every house that doesn't have wall insulation is to blow insulation in the walls, both yeah. because of the reduction in conduction and, and infiltration. But uh, what were we talking about? Uh, uh, ventilation. Oh, oh, yeah. So Westcap, well, they weren't the first, but people started asking, so how do we know when to stop? How tight is too tight? And how should we measure it? And, you know, there was this LBL infiltration model, which was kind of complicated and required a multi-point blower door test and uh, estimated the natural infiltration rate. And, and uh, some of us thought about this for a while, decided that was too complicated. And we decided that we should just measure, use CFM 50 as a, uh metric for measuring the air tightness and we decided that for a house with i think it was four or less occupants you should not go below 1500 cfm at 50 pascals and if you do i mean you should still seal the attic because if you don't seal the attic you have ice dams and you have moisture problems, you have mold in your attic, you have other problems, you should absolutely still blow the walls because that's so cost effective. Well, now in some cases, you're gonna get below 1500. So what do you need to do? And we, it, it was up to individual agencies what to do. And a lot of them didn't do anything, but yeah. some of them started putting in continuously operating quiet exhaust fans. Yeah. I think the first ones that were, were used were the inline duct fans like Fantech fans. And, yeah. and then the the uh, really quiet uh, bathroom fans started coming on the market and they started using those more. But we, so, we decided so if you get below 1500 CFM 50, you should put in a bath fan. And then other people took that further and took into account, of course, the number of people in the house and the height of the house and how windshielded it is and yeah. so on. But 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 I think that this Westcap was probably the first agency in the country to actually have a uh, a guideline for what level of tightness should they stop sealing at, or if they don't stop, they should install ventilation. Yeah. Um, so you said you've you've chose these numbers um, like 50 pascals. What? Why 50 pascals and not uh, 100 or 75 or something like that? Uh, well, uh, that number came from Sweden. <clears throat> I ideally you would like to measure at the pressure that houses actually operate at. But almost always, there's too much wind to measure at those low pressures accurately. Yeah. So uh, you want to measure at a higher pressure where wind isn't as important, but it's not so high that it takes a huge fan or you start doing damage to a building. And I don't know exactly when, but the Swedes started doing air tightness testing of houses at least in the early 60s and 
they uh, they got set at using uh, testing at 50 pascals and we just copied what they did. Yeah, yeah. And Is, uh, using this metric air changes per hour at 50 yeah. pascals, uh, that came as far as I know from Sweden, at least as long ago as the early 60s, maybe earlier. And I think it was my idea to get away from air changes and to go with absolute numbers like CFM 50 yeah. uh, instead of air changes per hour, because the amount of ventilation you need doesn't really depend on the size of the house. It depends on how many people are in the house and what's in the house. So coming up with a uh, CFM 50 for a typical house and then adding, uh, I forget what, what, what was it, like 300 CFM? If there's more than four people in the house, we added 300 CFM 50 for each additional occupant, something like that. Yeah. I think uh, BPI uses that or used to use that uh, in their building analyst uh, type uh, training. Um, yeah. But they also, it, and it, it on the national level, um, the natural air changes, the decimal point uh, description of, <laughs> of air leakage uh, became really popular um, yep. for long. And in fact, uh, it's still embedded inside of uh, uh, manual J calculations or you know, HVAC yep. calculations. Um, yep. do, you, do you think there's any benefit in um, using a natural air change number? Uh, well, the CFM 50 numbers that we use are really based on an estimated natural infiltration mm -hmm. rate. Yeah. And yeah, it is the natural infiltration rate that matters if we're going to rely on air leakage uh, to provide some or all of our ventilation. But because it's hard to measure and is not very repeatable, uh, we kind of translate natural CFM uh, into a CFM 50 number. Uh, yeah. And nobody wants to admit this, I guess, but somebody came up with the idea that natural annual average natural air change rate is roughly CFM 50 divided by 20 or air changes per hour at 50 pascals divided by 20 in air changes rather than in CFM. And uh, people accuse Andy personally of doing this. He wrote his PhD thesis on uh, re doing a blower door test on a house once a week for a year and how, how repeatable were the various uh, flows that he measured and so on. And people accuse him of dividing, coming up with dividing by 20, and he denies it. He says, no, it wasn't me. And he said, no, it was Gautam, Gautam Dutt. And Gautam says, no, it wasn't me. It must have been uh, uh, Max Sherman. Or, <laughs> so nobody is really, nobody, no, it wasn't, wasn't <laughs> me, wasn't me. <laughs> Nobody ever fessed up, but uh, you know Max. It was probably Stebrick. He likes to throw numbers around. 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and and Stiebrick would divide by twenty, even though the right number was seventeen point two three seven. But uh, there was a there was an interesting article that for years we published in our a copy of in our Blordor manual that was in Home Energy magazine that was a way to estimate air changes natural infiltration rate from the air changes at 50 pascals or CFM at 50 pascals. And it takes into account the climate, the height of the house, and the wind shielding. And you have to estimate these things and it's yeah. pretty loose. Uh, yeah. uh, so, but for, for my climate, the number turns out for a one-story house to be somewhere around 15. But for Florida, the number turns out to be more like uh, 30 or yeah. 40. Uh, so it, it varies depending on the climate. The range. What is it? I think it was 17.5 when we were used to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we used to use 17 a lot. Yeah. Um, but so, so, so oh, at least in at least in new houses, newer houses. I think this is this uh, discussion about natural air changes really should be almost a moot point because yeah. we should make houses tight enough for other reasons so that the natural infiltration rate provides an insignificant part of the ventilation that people need yeah. and we should be relying on mechanical ventilation systems. Yeah. to provide the ventilation, then it doesn't matter. Then all that matters is, is the tight, is the house reasonably tight so that the infiltration rate will be pretty small compared to what we need, and then we provide mechanical ventilation. Yeah, and on a national level, I guess from a, a code level, the the dialogue still is what's what's reasonably tight. Uh, we can't, yeah. we can't, I mean, it, it, Three air changes doesn't seem to be um, that it shouldn't be that number. Um, what do you think reasonable should be? I think one, yeah, something and like one. It's achievable um, on a regular uh, on a regular basis. The other thing that's happening on a national basis, one of the things that I I've been pushing for amongst a, a, a number of other people, is um, on a national level, at least from a code perspective. Uh, migrating to a CFM per square foot of shell area uh, metric rather than an ACH 50. And I was curious what your thoughts on that are. Oh, I totally agree. I, I think we should get away from using ACH 50 as a number because it's houses don't leak proportional to their volume. It's not the the air doesn't leak out of the volume. The air leaks through the surfaces. So what yeah. matters is the quality and the quantity of surfaces in a building. And actually, you know, it, it's the joints. So maybe we should really be adding up all the linear feet of joints and doing CFM per foot of crack or something. But yeah. no, I think I think surface area is the way to way to go. Uh, so Sweden did all of this research, which resulted be in the 70s after the Arab oil embargo of, I think it was 74, Sweden mm -hmm. really very quickly 
for the first time decided to make their energy code uh, such that it would improve the efficiency of houses. In the 1975 Swedish en uh, energy code or building code required that single family houses have an air change rate at 50 pascals of three or less. And I think it was in 78 or maybe 80, Sweden added to that code the option of, and I think it was recommended for building big buildings that you not use air changes per hour, but you use a flow per area number. They did cubic meters per hour or liters per second per square meter, yeah. which is like CFM 50 per square foot, which, yeah, I think. That makes total sense. Yeah, and it it really helps us uh, we're, as we're seeing uh, diverse housing types and attached housing, and being able to yeah. think about uh, compartmentalization as well as uh, energy leakage. I yeah. think. So I was uh, just reading some Swedish books uh, just the last couple of days, and they in their their code they said. Uh, for a single family house, the number was, and this is from 1975, the 1975 code. Single family house, three air changes per hour at 50 pascals. A two story house, and maybe this was just for a, a duplex, was two ACH 50. And multifamily buildings that were three or more stories or more than two units, something like this, the requirement was one ACH 50. Wow. And they were assuming that you were going to put a blower door in an apartment, not testing the building. Yeah. But then they figured out that, oh, in lots of buildings, a lot of the leakage is leakage to other units or to hallways and so on, and not to the outside, that they allowed for a single apartment if you tested a single apartment with a single blower door that it could be three ACH 50 also just like a single family house and typically if you test an apartment and it's three air changes per hour at 50 pascals from what we call a compartmentalization test where you're just using a single blower door yeah. and and actually you you're even probably opening windows from ad adjacent units to the outside uh, if you get down to three ACH 50, you're likely to have less than one ACH 50 to the outside. Two thirds yeah. of the leakage to the inside is certainly not unusual or maybe even more. So, yeah. uh, so I think, I think they came up with about the right numbers. One, one air change per hour at 50 Pascals, except they said that for a single family house, three was okay. And I, I think, well, one reason why I think we should go with one is that with the, in, with the uh, invention of using zip sheathing or just, you know, plywood or whatever the structural sheathing is on the outside of the walls, making that your air barrier makes yeah. it so much easier to build a tight house. Yeah. And, you know, once you get the concept of what you have to do to get a house down to one, it really is not very hard. 
Yeah. You need you need one person on the job that knows where where the leaks are and what you need to do and to make sure that they get done. But it really is not very difficult. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, there and, are builders that say, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. That's way too hard. But yeah. I, I disagree. I think one is a reasonable number. And, of course, the Passive House uh, program has set their standard at 0.6 ACH yeah. 50. And from what I've read, that is not based on energy. That's They, they came up with that number as a number that if you get to that level or below, the chance of having an air leak that's going to cause moisture damage because of warm, moist air leaking into your cold wall or your cold attic or whatever, that the probability of moisture problems due to air leakage is, is reduced dramatically if you get down to 0.6 or less. Or less. Yeah, and, and course, I think... I think a lot of that, people are figuring out it's easy to get down there too if you really yeah. know what you're doing. It's a little more work, but it's not hard. For sure. For Sorry. Sure. I, that's fine. I think that's one of the the biggest um, impacts of the blower door that that you helped uh, bring into uh, the norm is the recognition that air is carrying a multiple multiple things oh. that can ultimately yeah. be detrimental to our building, not just from an energy perspective, but from a building durability and a health and safety perspective and all these other things. And we just wouldn't know that without the blower door. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah. So, you, um, so you're selling blower doors um, uh, across the country. Uh, you're selling uh, around the world as well? I oh, yeah. We yeah. sell a lot, uh, a lot in Europe, some in Asia, but not not a lot. Uh, How many blower doors do you think you you sell a year? Oh, I forget. In, Sorry, in your I to get one in every builder's It's hand. certainly more than a thousand. Uh, yeah. several thousand, three thousand, four thousand, yeah. something, something like that. That's great. That's uh, great. And I think we're up to having sold thirty or forty thousand. Maybe it's more than that now. Oh. Wow. And um, I know you have one competitor in the U.S. Are there other competitors in Europe and other parts of the world? That are yeah, in, Ger in Germany, there's a company called Wohler that has a, a blower door that has a reversible fan that will measure flow in both directions. And uh, it's really not very accurate but i don't think that they really claim that it's very accurate i think it's yeah. kind of uh sold as a craftsman blower door for, for the people that i originally thought should have blower doors uh, yeah and in fact you know our first blower doors my goal was to have them be plus or minus 20 percent accurate i thought that's good enough yeah for a contractor and i think that it really is for a contractor. Yeah. Unless he's the that contractor is testing to determine whether or not his house meets the code, then yeah. you really want it to be more accurate than that. But but uh, so you you're the energy the Minneapolis blower door is ten percent or 
five. Oh, five, five percent. Yeah. Or I think it's three percent, five percent or three percent. I'm not sure. Uh, and then I think there's also a blower in Japan. Okay. But I don't know anything about it. We we had a distributor that started to market our blower in Japan, and it just never went anywhere. And somebody in Japan copied parts of it and came up with their own and yeah. and uh as i've heard for lots of things the japanese don't like to import a lot of stuff yeah. they like to export things but they they don't they they like to make their own of everything yeah yeah so i have to ask you uh since we're talking about accuracy uh yep. the the new uh standard 380 from resnet um is requiring that you can do a, a multi-point test or a single point test, but if you do a single point test, you have to add 10% uh, to that. And it just doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that and why why the 10% and uh, do we need to be that accurate for these energy models? Well, I've spent quite a few hours arguing and I'm on your side. Uh, the 10% is added because some people think that the most important thing that you get out of the Glorador test for ResNet is an estimate of the natural air change rate and that that should be based on the flow at four pascals that you get when you do a multi-point blower test. Okay. However, most people that do blower tests these days are doing them to determine whether or not it meets the requirement of the code. And that number is never used to yeah. calculate the flow at four pascals or, or the energy use because of the natural infiltration rate. So it shouldn't be required unless you really need the flow at four pascals. And I would even question that. Uh, some of the researchers uh, even agree that if it's more than about a 10 mile an hour wind, you probably get a better estimate of the flow at four pascals by taking the flow at 50 pascals and assuming a certain exponent in the house leakage curve and then extrapolating down to four. Well, if you're going to allow that, then you shouldn't have a penalty for doing a one-point test at 50 pascals. Yeah, uh, seems that way to me so as well. I, I totally, I totally disagree with that. But you know, you you win some, you lose some. Yeah. So um, bringing the blower door to um, the market is just one of your many accomplishments. Uh, the Energy Conservatory has also brought in a lot of other equipment. Uh, which do you think of the other equipment that uh, you've brought to market has the, been mo the most impactful? Uh, probably the duct blaster. Uh, that came out in like 86 or 87 and is required now by lots of codes if any of the ducts are outside yeah. you must do a, a duct leakage test and in, and, uh, 2021 iecc we got it so that regardless of the location you have to test 
Oh, is that right? Yeah. So they under if you have a forest air system, the ducts have to be tested. Regardless, the the Regardless. CFM rate is different, but uh, if they're inside okay. versus outside, but they they have to be tested regardless of location in the 2021. Yeah, I think that makes sense in in new construction. I mean, you have these things called registers, and they're put there because that's where you want the air to come out. <laughs> so why not make the ducts tight so that the air comes out of the registers? It just seems crazy to have leaky ducts, especially you know when you're putting a duct system together. It maybe takes an extra hour to make it airtight, or maybe less. I I yeah. I haven't yeah. seen that study, but just just from True. from watching people do this in new construction, it it's really very little extra work to build a tight duct system. Yeah, what baffles me is that you test a system and the contractor knows that it's going to be tested, and it's yeah. Tight. And you test the system, and the contractor doesn't know, and it's not yeah. tight. It's like, yeah. what what does that say about the quality of you know craftsmanship these days? Is is not? Yeah. I don't know. It's baffling to yeah. me. Yeah. So one of the biggest complaints in Minnesota houses with basements is that in the summer it's too cold in the basement, and it's because the ducts leak. And they leak really bad. They they yeah. used to it. That that problem has gotten, I think, much better. But you know, so people close their registers in the basement uh, in the summer. But there's all these duct leaks. So even though there's no heat gain to the basement, the basement doesn't need cooling. But through the duct leaks, you're dumping ten or twenty percent of the cooling that's not needed into yeah. the basement. And now your basement is too cold and you're you're paying to cool your basement and to be uncomfortable. Well, that's really stupid. Uh, yeah. Or you're at yet, it. Yeah. And yet when we suggested like 30 years ago to the, uh, to the uh, in code hearings that ducts should be airtight and you shouldn't be using uh building cavities as return ducts and so on because you can't make them airtight uh builders just complain the builders association said no there's there's no comfort problem what are you talking about you're saying that people are complaining that they're cold in the summer <laughs> well yeah. yeah and now that ducts are tighter they don't complain anymore well, I don't know about any more, but well, it, I think it, that problem has largely gone away. Yeah, but the the argument is still there um, it, at the code code hearings and and whatnot. It's exactly the same same arguments that happen cycle after cycle and are happening right yeah. now with the t development of the 2024. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um. So. Besides uh, the development of equipment and the uh, continual development of the energy conservatory, uh, have you been involved in research uh, as well uh, over the over the years? 
Well, in, in the early days, you know, when I first left my job, uh, that's mainly what I was doing. I, I was involved with this research on the, the Minnesota weatherization program. There was another study done on a group of very, that were supposed to be very low energy houses that were built under a Minnesota Housing Finance Agency low energy program. Uh, I did a lot of research on that. Uh, I haven't, for quite a few years, I haven't get, been involved in, in many studies where we're being hired to participate as researchers. Instead, I end up working with the researchers to help them figure out how to use our equipment to measure things that they want to measure. Yeah. And that's been really rewarding. You know, yeah. I, I was involved with a lot of the duct leakage research projects in the 80s and 90s with Ecotope and the Florida Solar Energy Center. And uh, so I, I got to work with the researchers, but wasn't actually doing the research other than helping design the the procedures to measure things yeah so i i well, hear then, of course there's our there's our own internal research that we do uh on new product development and so on that's always fun yeah yeah um speaking of uh your internal uh business uh you're in a, a process of transition right now i hear um so the tell me about uh, the direction that the energy conservatory is going right now so i was the i started out with a partner gary anderson i bought him out oh i suppose it's 20 years ago now uh and i think it's about five years ago uh i so so then I was the sole owner for a long time. And about five years ago, I sold uh, the company to Steve Rogers and he brought on uh, a marketing friend of his, Bill Graber, as a partner. <laughs> so it, the ownership is now the two of them. Part of the deal though is I don't wanna retire. I yeah. like what I do. I yeah. I can't I I would be doing similar things if I was retired but if I'm working at the energy conservatory it opens lots of doors I you know I get to meet more people I get to go to more things and do more things so uh yeah. the deal is that I I get to work there as long as I want well, I, I can be fired if I become incompetent, but <laughs> hopefully I will recognize that in time to decide to ret retire yeah. rather than be fired. But uh, so that all happened five years ago, and it's great to not have to think about doing uh, personnel reviews, hiring, firing, uh, yeah. dealing with paying the bills and training and oh it's great to just be able to pretty much most of the time I get to do what I want to do 
That's wonderful. Yeah. 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 It's a great deal. Best so, job I ever had. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the the company is in way better hands. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I I was never really into owning a company and the the business management and all that stuff. I'm interested in making buildings more energy efficient and healthier and so on. And luckily, uh, you maybe know Rob Nevitt, who has mm -hmm. was was the general manager for many years. Uh, when I was the sole owner, he he became the general manager and he pretty much ran the company. And I I did get to do most of what I wanted. Yeah. But I still had to make the I was the the final decision maker when when there were problems or or questions, and uh, I like not doing that. And he's still there and yeah. doing great. Great, well, that's good to hear. Um, so, what's on the horizon? Uh, what kind of things are you working on now? Ah, uh, good question. Uh, my last project, which still hasn't quite finished, is uh, the invention of a smoke puffer oh, yeah. using a turkey baster and an e-cigarette uh, <laughs> and a rubber plug and a and a check valve. Uh, in hindsight, it's embarrassing how much time I spent designing this this thing because in the end it's so simple that you can just you know uh, easily make one yourself that'll work pretty well. But I'm I am working a little bit on trying to make that better. Uh, I'm supposed to be doing some studies on uh, the uh, on how to reduce or how to increase accuracy in windy weather by deciding figuring out where is the best place to put the outdoor reference uh hose mm -hmm. uh or maybe not use an outdoor reference hose and just use a very sensitive barometer that's inside the house that senses the change in pressure due to the blower door running mm. We've done a little research on that, so would, would that uh, be in, uh, incorporated into uh, like the DG1000 gauge, the barometer? Oh, it could be, yeah, or it might be a separate thing. Uh, it, it's too soon to know if that's going to even work. It it is kind of surprising that uh, <coughs> we we have a very expensive barometer that can sense the change in barometric pressure down to it's at least a hundredth of a pascal, maybe a thousandth of a pascal. And I've done a bunch of uh, uh, testing where I've put like eight, house, eight tubes outside my, my house. And so I'm measuring the house with reference to outside at eight different exterior locations. And at the same time, I'm measuring the change in barometric pressure on the inside of the house. And it's pretty interesting that under some, under lots of wind conditions, the barometric pressure is 
is bouncing around, is fluctuating as much as the pressure difference measured with a manometer that's measuring the pressure difference between inside and outside, which really surprises me. I would think, and I'm in a fairly tight house. It's it's uh, under one ACH 50. It's about 500 CFM 50. I would think that the air tightness of the house would buffer the pressure fluctuations due to the wind, but it doesn't. And yeah. I haven't quite figured that. Well, I, I haven't done enough uh, thinking about yeah. that to figure out, is that something that's weird about my house or should <laughs> I should probably make this measurement on other houses, but carrying this barometer around and doing the data logging is a, is a little bit tedious and, but yeah. I should, we should do it. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that yeah. One, one thing I'm doing is just this studying how to how to get more accurate data on on days when it's windy. Yeah, so I can uh, one day uh, take the Coke bottle out of my gear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coke. I've kind of determined the Coke bottle doesn't really work. Doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, what what I what I've come up with is that. If you put the end of the hose on the leeward side of the building, right where the wall meets the ground, so there's a, you know, the the joint where the wall and the ground meet, put mm -hmm. the end of your tube right there. Uh, one way to do that is to tape it so that the tube is facing down. It's facing right into that crack between the ground and the foundation. Yeah. Uh, or you can just lay it horizontally so that it's the tube is parallel to that crack. Uh, there's very little wind at that location. So you you remove the pressure fluctuations due to the wind actually hitting the end of your tube. Yeah. With the Coke bottle, you also do that, but now the wind blows across the opening in the Coke bottle. <laughs> and, and the... It doesn't really help much in, yeah. in my measurements where I've measured. I haven't I haven't measured that a lot. Uh, I also thought I think it was Neil Moyer that came up with the idea of drilling a hole in the ground and putting the tube in the ground, and then putting a stopper at the top so that you're just measuring the pressure in a hole in the ground. And I'm surprised that that doesn't seem to work. That's just as noisy as if the end of the tube were just on the surface, maybe tucked into the grass a little bit because yeah. you you do get rid of the problem that the wind is actually hitting the end of the tube. But you do that if you just tuck the tube into the grass a little or, or throw something on top of it. Yeah. Some people throw a rug on top or something like that. Yeah. Do you remember Toby Benson? I remember the name but i can't picture a face okay he he was uh worked at uh ncat the national center for appropriate technology in butte montana and he was one of the one of our early customers and he would uh and he said we had i had many conversations with him about wind and trying to dampen the effect of the wind and and his technique and he, He's in Montana and does 
did a lot of testing in areas where there was always wind. Yeah. And he would pound a stick in the ground, maybe 10 feet away from the from where the blower door was and hang a handkerchief from the from that stick. And then he would wait until the the handkerchief was either just hanging, you know, limp because yeah. there was a little lull in the wind. And then he would take a data point and then he would wait adjust the speed of the fan. He was doing multi-point tests. He would adjust the speed of the fan and he would wait until the handkerchief were was still again to get his data. And yeah, we've decided that actually does work. But we, we've been toying a little bit with the idea of automating that by Maybe we measure the pressure difference between the windward side of the house and the leeward side of the house uh, while we're doing our test and we wait until the standard deviation of the 10 second readings uh, gets to be a minimum and then take data or something like that. If but, you yeah, were Toby to- Yeah, Toby Benson came up with that. The other factor is is the impact of the wind on the fan. Um, if yeah. you just if you just uh, test at higher pressures and higher fan speed, um, does that take that out of the equation? Yeah, ideally, if you have the choice of testing either with the open fan with the fan on low speed or ring A with the fan on a higher speed, you're better off at higher speed because now the fluctuations due to the wind are small yeah. compared to the fan pressure that you're measuring. Yeah. Uh, and actually the fluctuations due to the fan pressure aren't so much of a problem when you're depressurizing, they're more of a problem when you're pressurizing because now the reference pressure for the fan is outside. Yeah. Where when you're doing a depressurization test, your fan pressure reference is inside the house, so it's not directly in the wind. That's one reason for only doing depressurization tests. Yeah. Maybe uh, my last question will be on that, that point, uh, because Passive House is asking us to do both a pressurization yeah. and a depressurization test. Um, do you think it matters to do both? No. no. Yeah, I, I think. Somebody might say, well, it's more accurate. Well, yeah. when the house is 0.6 ACH 50 or less, yeah, it doesn't matter anymore how, how tight it is. And it doesn't matter if even if your accuracy is 20%, that's good enough. Yeah. I I'd agree. Uh, so no, I I don't agree with that. But one person told me they they're doing the uh, pressurization mm -hmm. test and depressurization test primarily uh, to try to understand the impact of window air leakage. Um, yeah, but, it it is interesting. In think, houses, typically, I think you get higher reading when you're pressurizing, but in commercial buildings, it's the opposite. Yeah. And I don't think we really understand that. But it, I think it's 
they might also be saying, well, we want to do pressurization and depressurization in case there are any leaks in the building that tend to open, like windows. You know, a window, when you pressurize it, if the window opens out, it tends to push the window away from the seal, and maybe it makes the window a little leakier. Yeah. <clears throat> I highly doubt, though, that if you did a thousand houses, I don't think you'd find more than one percent of them where one of those tests is twenty percent different or thirty percent different than the other. And I think that if they are thirty percent different, it doesn't matter at all because the house is plenty tight. So yeah. I, I I think it's a waste of time. It's not a big waste of time. You're you know. Getting to the house and severing everything up is most of the work. And if you have to do a pressurization and a depressurization test, it maybe adds, what, five minutes, 10 minutes to the test? Yeah. So it it's not a big deal. It's, again, one of those uh, fights that maybe isn't worth fighting. For sure, for sure. But I, I think depressurizing only the big thing is in most houses, there are multiple backdraft dampers. There's dryers, kitchen fans, bathroom fans. They all have backdraft dampers. If you do a pressurization test, all of those things blow open so that you really should seal all of those. But sealing them is sometimes nearly impossible to do. And so just do a depressurization test. Also, if you seal them, which you pretty much need to do when you're pressurizing because they're being blown open yeah now you don't measure the leakage of the dampers and the damper leakage is a leak because most of the time most of those fans are off so when you do a depressurization test and you don't seal them you're still measuring the leakage of the damper which you i think want to do and you're not having to deal with the fact that you're blowing the damper open when you're pressurizing. Yeah. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense to just depressurize. And then when you're in a cold climate, I assume the same thing is true in a, in a hot climate. Uh, if you pressurize a house on a day when it's 20 below zero, it gets really cold immediately <laughs> downstream of the fan. And I've heard of, bird, of some people killing a bird. I've, I've heard of uh, plants getting killed uh, mm -hmm. from freezing that are in the blast of the fan. Huh. But if the house is like three ACH 50 or less and you do a depressurization test, you really don't notice that the house temperature changes that much. The air as it's leaking in picks up heat and and uh, doesn't cause as much of a problem, I don't think. So I, I think there's a lot of good reasons for just depressurizing. Yeah, I, I I totally agree there. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for everything that you've done for our industry. Uh, you're a real pioneer and uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and, and to know you over the years here. Well, it's been a pleasure doing all the things <laughs> that I've had a chance to do and and thank you for doing the the uh, build casts and all of the work that you've done on, especially on building codes and 
going to those meetings, it, it must be grueling. <laughs> and yeah. Thanks for doing that. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.